Let us uh, turn in the uh, insert for this evening's service, where there is printed for us the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27. We will confess together Lord's Day 27. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are truly washed spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. And now turning in your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, and we will read verses 37 through 39. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Well, it's such a rich blessing to witness an infant baptism. Nothing so vividly depicts God's sovereign grace amid our helplessness as when a baby held in a pastor's arms receives those waters of baptism. We are dead in sin, but God, by his Holy Spirit, makes us alive in Christ. This is what we see in infant baptism. But I will never forget when I witnessed the baptism of one of my friend's two daughters. The infant, she was baptized first, but when it was time for the older sister to be baptized, she cried out, I don't want to go up there. The pastor, he gently invited her up, and she too received those marvelous sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Not only are we helpless in our salvation, but we resist it. We fight God's grace. But even while we are kicking and screaming, God, by his Holy Spirit, sweetly and powerfully bends our wills to love him. As he takes out our heart of stone, we are crying out, I don't want this. I don't want to be baptized. I don't want to be a Christian. But God, he compassionately and patiently condescends to us and pours his spirit upon us and makes us to be a new creation. 
Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Within this church, we rightly bring our children to Christ so that he may bless them. Because as we read in Acts chapter 2, the promises of God belong as much to those little children as, it, as they do to their believing parents. But even when we are convinced that we should baptize our children, we may still be confused about what precisely happens to our children when they are baptized. Do they actually receive some kind of blessing in baptism? Or is it merely, for them, an empty, an empty symbol, a kind of nice sentimental ceremony that gives the church a reason to celebrate uh, the precious gift of children? Well, we will see that baptism does, does contain blessings for the little children. As members of the covenant of grace, the promises of the covenant are sealed to them in their baptism. And in order to see this, we must begin by rightly understanding how the sign of baptism relates to what it signifies. Sacraments are signs. And as signs, they point to a reality beyond themselves. Signs signify things. We might think, for example, of the signs that we might see on the freeway. Driving on the freeway, you you perhaps could see the sign that says downtown. We understand that this sign itself is not downtown. We don't go to that sign and say, okay, now I'm in downtown San Diego. No, we know that by following that sign to what it signifies, insofar as we correctly follow that sign, we finally will arrive in downtown. You know, that place where there's a lot of pedestrians, these big buildings, and these scary streets that go one way. Consider smoke. What is smoke a sign of? Living in California, you know that where there is smoke, there is what? Fire. That's right. Not because smoke itself is the fire, but because it is produced by fire. And therefore, it functions as a legitimate sign of fire. Now, in in these cases, the relationship between the sign and the signified, they are clearly understood by us. But how does the sign of baptism relate to what it signifies? First, let's consider what it actually signifies. What does baptism signify? It signifies the washing away of our sins. It signifies our new birth. It signifies our being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and our union with Christ, our dying and rising with Him. And so then, how do these marvelous blessings relate to baptism? Well, throughout history, there have been three ways that the church has related the sign of baptism with that which it signifies. First, there is what we might call the minimal approach. The minimalists, they relate the sign and the things signified by separating them. We typically associate this view with Baptists. Uh, The sign in no way conveys what it signifies. For them, baptism is just a symbol. Uh, It points to that spiritual reality of the Holy Spirit giving to us new life, a new spirit, a new uh, heart, signifying regeneration. There are some within Reformed churches who hold to a more minimalist view. For them, a child who is baptized is merely a member of this covenant community, one raised in faith by the church. In in infant baptism, then, it functions as kind of a child dedication, where parents dedicate themselves to raise this child in a godly way. The blessing here, then, is only external and circumstantial. The second way the church has related the sign and the things signified in baptism is by confusing them or by collapsing them. We might call this realism because 
what is signified in baptism is actually conveyed in baptism itself. We can see this in uh, various churches, such as the Roman Catholic Church and Lutheranism, Anglicanism, and Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy. This is what's been called baptismal regeneration. Since baptism gives what it signifies, the child who is baptized is regenerated. And there have even been in this camp some reformed who have uh, believed that the child is given a seed of faith through baptism. Or even uh, others who say that the kid is baptized because he is regenerated, uh, what's called presumptive regeneration. But lastly, we come to what our confessions teach, that baptism and what it signifies are distinct but not separate. This is what has been called sacramental union. We distinguish the sign from the thing signified in such a way that what is signified is not brought into effect by the sign itself, but by the Holy Spirit who works, who gives that through faith. So even though baptism is a sign of regeneration, the child who is baptized is regenerated not at the time of baptism, but when the Spirit wills it, who works mysteriously in all these, all these things. But we also believe that what is signified in baptism can still be said of the child who has been baptized, even if they are not elect. We can maintain this understanding that the sign and the thing signified are covenantally united. They are united because baptism occurs from within a covenant community. Believers and their children belong to the covenant community. Now, what do I mean by covenant community? That's one of those phrases that's often used, but we don't really think too much about. Well, in a word, the covenant community is the church. God has made with the church a covenant, the covenant of grace. That gracious covenant that from Adam to Abraham and on to Christ in uh, in which God has promised to save those who are in Christ through faith. And God has manifested, made his covenant sign, uh, and and covenant people um, manifested them in a a, uh, visible community. Uh, The way in which somebody is uh, a member of that community is through baptism. So all the promises of the covenant of grace are given to everybody who is baptized. That's just what Peter was saying in Acts 2. It's true that the covenant community is made up of elect and non-elect. And at the end of the ages, Christ will winnow the wheat from the chaff. But we do not make the judgment uh, that whoever is in this building, for example, we do not make the judgment that perhaps this person's elect and this person's non-elect. All we know is that those who profess faith along with their children are members of that covenant. To put this another way, the circle of the covenant is broader than the circle of election. The promises of God are attached to the covenant. So those who are members of this covenant, namely those who are baptized, they are members of this covenant community. And so whether they are elect or non-elect, they have the promises of God sealed to them in baptism. And what are those promises? We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we have the promise of union with Christ in which we have regeneration and justification, adoption and sanctification and glorification. And we have that most wonderful promise that God will be our God and we will be his people. In Genesis 17, 7, God promises Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That covenant God made with Abraham is the very same covenant that he has made with us in Christ. In Genesis 17, God included Abraham's children. 
And I think that Peter, in our, in our text today, Acts chapter 2, I think he's actually drawing upon uh, those words of Genesis, Genesis 17 when he says that the promise is for you and for your offspring. God promises in his covenant to be the God of our children. Our children are members of the covenant of grace. The promises of the covenant are given to them. That is what baptism signifies. But as in all sacraments, there is both a sign and a seal. Those promises are sealed to our children in baptism. Official documents are authenticated by seals. If a king wanted to authorize and make official the contents of a document, he would use his royal seal like a stamp. So when people would see that seal, they would know that this document uh, has the authority of the king and that it is legally binding. So baptism, it seals those promises to our children, confirming to us and to them that God gives to them his promises. And this is, again, true even of the non-elect children who receive the sign of baptism. When they are baptized, these promises are sealed to them as well. And we know this because they are holy. Paul calls our children holy in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, holy, it doesn't refer to some kind of intrinsic property that the the child has, like some kind of stuff that's just infused into him, like medicine. It simply means to be set apart from that which is common. So unlike other children, the children of believers are set apart by God and made members of his covenant. Therefore, when Paul calls children holy, he is saying that they are covenantally holy, set apart and made members of this covenant of grace. And again, this is true even of non-elect children. This should give us comfort because we shouldn't be speculating about whether or not our children are unelect. What we do is have confidence that they have been baptized. That is our confidence. Even when our children disobey, we, we remind ourselves they have been baptized. So that's, this, this merits a point of clarification. We do not have a God's eye view of things. We don't know who is elect and who are non-elect. As Spurgeon put it, God has not chalked up people's backs so that we may know whether or not they are elect. We do know, though, who uh, are uh, the recipients of God's promises. It is his covenant community, believers and their children. So even though we do not have absolute certainty who elect children are, we know that they are members of the covenant, heirs of the promises of God, and therefore we should expect everyone who is baptized to be with us in paradise. The canons of Dort confirm this. It says, The children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included. And so even though we don't know who the elect are, since the children have received the sign and seal of God's promises, Dort concludes that godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in infancy. We can have confidence that our children are elect because they have the promise of God sealed to them in baptism. In fact, we can refer to them as recipients of these promises even now. One way we can view this is in terms of the law and the gospel. Remember, the law is, do this and you shall live. But the gospel is, Christ has done it for you, therefore you now live. And scripture teaches us that the gospel promise... I'm repeating myself a lot here, but so I hope that it comes clearly to you guys. The gospel promise is for the children of believers as well. For the unbeliever, the, the, perhaps the adult unbeliever, the gospel it can only be viewed through the lens of the law. It's only by going through the law that that gospel is sweet to them. The law condemns in order that the gospel might justify. But for covenant children, the law is not meant to condemn 
They have already received those promises. The law then, for them, it ought to convict, just as it does for every one of us. That's that first use of the law. The law convicts so that we may look to Christ in the gospel and find assurance. The law for them, as for unbelievers, then, is seen through the, law, the lens of the gospel. That's the third use of the law. The law which uh, that once condemned us, which continues to convict us for children, is still uh, something that they ought to do. We considered this a few weeks ago. But that law is, is seen through the lens of the gospel. As recipients of the promises of God, they are expected and able to perform the law of God. And this is modeled for us in the book of Colossians. In Colossians, Paul seamlessly weaves law and gospel together, but the law is always grounded in the gospel. How we are to live as members of God's covenant community, as heirs of the covenant of grace, is grounded in the reality of who we are through baptism. Wonderful truths Paul speaks to us in Colossians. He says, As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you continue to live in worldly ways? If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death what is earthly in you, and put on Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These are the marvelous truths that Paul reveals to us in the book of Colossians. And he says that those things that he, see, that he says... They are true of those who are baptized. All of these truths, these wonderful promises, and even this uh, prodding to live in in the newness of life which we have in Christ is sealed in our baptism. In Colossians 2.11, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And how is that done? By having been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him by the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In our baptism, we are buried with Christ and raised with him in newness of life. All of those wonderful promises and truths, they are given, they're um, signified and sealed to us in our baptism as much to us as to our children. And so for this reason, Paul can address children as members of the covenant community, as those who partake of these gospel truths and as those who are expected to live out the law of Christ. In the midst of all of these gospel promises, without batting an eye, without any qualifications, Paul goes on and gives the children instruction. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children please God by obeying their parents. Now, can this ever be said of an unbeliever? Can an unbeliever ever be pleasing to God? Indeed not. But children are, because they are members of this covenant of grace. Again, heirs of the promises of God. And so as heirs and as raised within the covenant community, coven children, they organically grow up into the faith. There are some who, when you ask them, you know, when they were saved, they will say, you know, I've never known a time when I wasn't. Perhaps you know some uh, covenant children who can tell you when they were, when they were um, converted and when uh, uh, God uh, placed within them a new heart. But for the majority of covenant children, it's just always been that way. They've always 
known Christ and enjoyed the blessings as a covenant child. Our children are disciples of Christ. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and by instructing them. We know this is true of children because Paul includes those children in his instructions in Ephesians 6. Fathers are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we don't treat our children as unbelievers who need to have a conversion experience. They are to be treated as Christians, as disciples. And that's why we teach our children the Lord's Prayer. Our children pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is a prayer we teach our children, not so that, not with the hope that they can really pray it, but because we expect them and, and we train them up uh, and, and teach them to have confidence that when they pray to God, he hears them. And so Paul, again in Ephesians 6, he gives instruction also to children. They are to obey the parents in the Lord. They obey the parents in the Lord. And this instruction is grounded in the fact that they are members of the covenant community so that it may go well with you in the land. For this reason, then, when covenant children, they, when they fall short, when they sin and when they disobey, we do not tell them to repent and believe and hope uh, that God will give them grace. We remind them of their baptism. We address them after the fashion of Matthew 18, where we call them to repentance and remind them of who they are, who they are in Christ. They've been joined to him in, in their baptism. Telling them that they are not living in a way consistent with their baptism. And when our children doubt, we do not lead them through a sinner's prayer. But again, we remind them of their baptism. Assuring them that God has been and will be gracious to them. When the child is baptized, the promise of the gospel and all that it entails are sealed to them. As sealed, and, uh, as sealed, the promises are confirmed to that child, and he is assured that he is a member of this covenant. And this is actually picked up in our liturgical forms as well. In the first form of baptism, just after administering baptism to a child, the Thanksgiving prayer says, Almighty God and merciful Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son and so adopted us as your children. You have sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. Because our children have been baptized, we can say that God has forgiven them of their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, that they are members of Christ through the Spirit, and that they are adopted, not because they are regenerated in baptism, but because they are made partakers of the covenant blessings in virtue of the promises that the covenant have, are sealed to them by baptism. So then, does this give our children a, a false sense of security? Does this force them to adopt that attitude that, you know, they don't need to have uh, faith for themselves? Uh, they could say, you know, I've been baptized. Uh, I'm all good. I don't need faith. I don't really need to do good works. I don't really need to go to church. I've been baptized. God has given to me his promises. I'm all good. Well, first, those promises are only effectual through faith. That's what we were talking about with the sacramental union. The children must embrace the promises for themselves. We can think of it like an inheritance. All the promises belong to the heir. He enjoys the benefits of the inheritance and expects to receive it. Uh, but there comes a point where he has to sign his name on that dotted line. This gospel inheritance belongs to children, but it can only be received once they sign their name on the form. 
Personal faith in Christ is that signature that brings all of the blessings of the estate into their possession. This is how it was for Esau. He was a member of the covenant of grace. The promises of God uh, in the gospel were sealed to him in his circumcision. He was an heir of the promises of God, but he gave up his birthright. He rejected it. It's true uh, of all of us that even though we are baptized, we can still reject those promises. We can sell our inheritance for a mess of worldly pottage. We reject this inheritance when we fail to have the faith for ourselves. Hebrews 6 gives us a sobering image of apostasy. It speaks of a person who enjoys the benefits of the covenant, but end up rejecting it. But notice how Hebrews 6, amid the warning, describes what they are rejecting. Something they are right then and there participating in. They have, it says in Hebrews 6, these people who have apostatized, they have, they have been enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. This is strong language describing what the member of the covenant community is experiencing. But this person who has tasted of the powers of the age to come has rejected that age to come for the sake of the present evil age. So we do know, right, that we do not lose our salvation. Therefore, Hebrews 6 is not describing somebody who's been regenerated. Instead, it's talking about somebody who has been a member of the covenant community, who has enjoyed the benefits of that covenant community, and that has departed from it. And yet they still participate in those eschatological and soteriological realities. It's describing then what the children of the covenant grow up into. These are the great blessings of the covenant that the baptized now participate in and enjoy. This wonderful imagery, it's expanded upon in Hebrews 12. Worship is a covenant renewal ceremony. When we come to church, the covenant community gathers together and the Holy Spirit descends, making heaven a present, albeit invisible, reality for us. In Hebrews 12, it says that we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here and now, there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. We come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, who is that? Who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Those are those saints who have died in the faith. The, the friends and the family who have gone on, who have died in the Lord, they are with us even now by the Holy Spirit, worshiping beside us, worshiping the living God. We come to God here, and we come to Jesus, the sprinkling of the blood. That is what we are doing right now. That is the wonderful benefit for those who have been baptized. Children participate in this heavenly worship, tasting of the powers of the age to come. So you have been baptized, whether you are an adult or a child, believe and be assured that all of the promises of God are for you, are for you because you have been made a member of Christ. Look to Christ and know that your baptism is true. You have had your sins washed away. You have the righteousness of God. You have the hope of glory. And you even participate in that heavenly worship at this very moment. Join together with all the believers throughout time and space, worshiping the triune God who has made you his own through baptism. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that our children and we ourselves who have been baptized, that we all would know the comfort that we have in that baptism, that we may be assured that your promises are for us. I pray, Lord, that uh, those children, Lord, who 
have not yet received the, the full benefits of, this, of these promises, who have not really made the, the faith their own, that you would give them that gift of faith and that they would be uh, true partakers and, and uh, recipients of those heavenly blessings as they are held out for them uh, in eternity, Lord. I pray, Lord, that those blessings would come to us now in Christ, that we would receive the fullness of those promises, and that you would, until that time comes, preserve us, Lord. Keep us in the faith. Strengthen us to look to Christ and to receive from him the assurance and comfort that we have in the Spirit and by your promises. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.